Heavenly Father, we come and thank you again for your word. We thank you that your word speaks to us in all our situations. Even if a guest speaker comes, we thank you that it's not reliant on uh, my knowledge uh, to know everyone here, but we thank you that you know us all together. And we thank you that even as uh, we look into your word, uh, whether we are uh, at the days of our youth or whether we are just before that silver cord gets broken in our old age, uh, we thank you that uh, your word speaks to us equally clearly and so simply uh, and encourages us to fear God and keep his commandments. And so we pray, even as a result of uh, considering 1 Corinthians uh, this morning, that it would be our joy, our pleasure, that we as a group with one voice uh, will fear God and keep his commandments. Help us in this, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I um, quote a song? Uh, I, try, I try and do this every now and then at the church, and it's usually a non-Christian, a secular song. And if anyone guesses the, the singer or the writer of the song, I usually have a prize. Sadly, I haven't got one for you this week, uh, because you should know this all, everyone should know this song. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The colors of a rainbow so pretty in the sky are also on the faces of people going by. I see friends shaking hands saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. I hear babies cry, I watch them grow. They'll learn much more than I'll ever know. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. No prizes if you guessed Louis Armstrong. No prizes if you guessed uh, 1960s. It was a massive hit. Every, everybody knows that song. Um, if I had a trumpet and I could actually play it, you'd probably be expecting me to do the solo now. But, but the reality is, uh, it's the words we were looking at, wasn't it? Um, he speaks about what a beautiful world we live in and the wonderful joy we have with friends, with family, uh, and people that we know. As Christians, we actually know this, don't we? We, we know the world's beautiful uh, because the Bible tells us that God made this world. And he doesn't make mistakes. In fact, he said it was very good. Uh, and even after the fall, there's just so much to love, so much to enjoy in this world. And how does a Christian balance this? You know, the love of all the things that we have in this world and the appreciation of everything that God has made. And yet, on the other hand, to love God and to love God uh, in the first place. Well, I think even though the topic is marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, I think we'll find Paul actually deal with this issue. And I'd like to look at, at what we just read uh, under three headings. And the first heading is, uh, the everyday things of life should not consume us. Uh, we should not obsess over the, every, the everyday things of life. You know, something was happening in Corinth. Uh, and we're unsure as to what exactly it is because Paul doesn't tell us. But in verse 26, he tells us it's a current matter and he tells us it's a distressing matter. We don't know if it affects all of the city of Corinth or if it just affects the Christian church in Corinth. But the distress is so bad. The current situation is so difficult that, that he tells Christians 
don't make any drastic changes in your life. This time is so much of an emergency. It's just better if you focus living godly lives under stress. Look at verse 26. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Yet in this situation, Paul you know, is speaking about marriage and singleness, and he actually puts a whole bunch of principles out for all of life. And these principles are not just for the Corinthians in the year in which he's writing, because we're told they actually can be used right up until the Lord comes again. They can be used right up until this whole world passes away. Uh, and so for Paul, in fact, he's saying between the time Jesus came and died and rose again, and between the time he comes again, this period of time, it's actually a relatively short period of time, and in this short period of time you will see these principles apply. Uh, look at what he says in verses 29 to 31. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on even those who have wives should be as, those, as though they had none, those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. Paul's a realist. Uh, he doesn't live in the cloud somewhere. He knows that he himself and we will have highs in our lives and we're going to have lows. He knows that sometimes we'll get into situations and things just will not get better. They will actually be as good as they actually are today. If anything, they might even get worse. We may have some good times and some good spells in our lives, but we've got to realize that we live in a fallen world and at any time we could also have bad times. Uh, these disasters that come upon us are sometimes naturally uh, coming upon us. They're natural disasters. Sometimes they're self-made. And sometimes they're, they're just other types of disasters that come from other people that make life difficult. For instance, in Romans, Paul has already once said, the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs. So, so even our world, in essence... It is cursed because of the fall and, and, and sin. And though it is a beautiful world, there are things in it that will be like groaning and pain and pangs. Or he says to the Christians, in, uh, to Timothy, when he's speaking to Timothy, that religions or governments or philosophies or groups can often band together and make life particularly di difficult for Christians. And Christians can live in this world with stress for a long period of time. In fact, he says to Timothy that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So, so can you see how realistic he is? On the one hand, you're in a beautiful world, but on the other hand, you're in a world that has sin introduced into it uh, because of Adam and Eve's falls. And you're going to know some great times and some great experiences in your life. And you're going to have some losses. 
and you're going to have some lows, and you're also going to have some sad times. And this is going to be the experience of the Corinthian Christians, and it's going to be our experience, isn't it? Until the world passes away, until Jesus comes again, this is what it's going to be like. But even the current distress for the Corinthians, it's going to pass away. It'll either pass away in their life, or they will pass away and they will no longer feel the current distress. Or else the whole world will pass away and even that distress will only be a current distress. So Louis Armstrong's song is really a bit too optimistic, isn't it? It, It's really a bit too sweet. It's rose-coloured lenses he's looking at this world through. When he says things like, I hear babies cry, I'll watch them grow. They'll learn much more than I'll ever know. He might sing well. He might play the trumpet so well. But he has no idea of history, really, when he says something like that, because in history we do learn a lot of things. We sent a man to the moon. Very soon we're going to send a commercial flight to the moon. And that's progression, isn't it? But then at the same time in history, we could not stop a thing called a holocaust. And right now in our current day, we cannot even stop the next bomb in Iraq. And so there's a sense in which we never learn. We never really grow. And yet there is another sense in which we do progress. In light of this, in light of this kind of world you live in, Paul says one major piece of advice. Don't get obsessed with the everyday things of life. Don't get so caught up and so stressed out and hung up with everyday things of life. If you're in the middle of a distress, it's only a current distress. It will pass away. There will be good news. It might be when this world fully passes away, but it will come. And if you're riding high, and if life is right now such a wonderful success, and you feel you're right at the top of your peak, and euphoria is the only word that comes to mind, I've got bad news for you. It's only a current situation. You're going to have lows. Just wait until you get to my age. The whole world is passing away. And he says, in four particular areas, do not let this world consume you. And the first of the areas he picks is sorrows. Look at verse 30. Those who weep as though they did not weep. And our sorrows come from so many places. I mean, little areas like... Uh, probably this afternoon I'm going to have the sorrow of losing in, uh, my team losing in a sport. Uh, and that will be a major sorrow for me because uh, it's not only concerning me today as I go through the day, but tomorrow I'll read about it and it'll hit me again a second day and then next week and onwards. Uh, but it could be more serious than that, couldn't it? It could be a loss of employment. It, it could be the possibility of stress or a breakup in marriage or a breakup with a friend. And then it could also be illness, or disability, or even death. And we will have sorrow in our life. But Paul's counsel to us here is don't get totally overwhelmed with it. On the one hand, don't be a robot, so that you have no feelings at all. You're a human being. Of course we grieve. And we should make sure we grieve well when we are in the midst of sorrow. But don't be totally consumed by it. Balance your sorrows with the joy of the Lord. 
I, I don't know if you've ever considered the example of David. King David lost a son. And when he lost his son, he was told it was his fault. He, he was told that because he committed adultery with Bathsheba, this son would die. And he pleaded with God. All night he lay beside this boy. And for seven days uh, he did not stop mourning. He did not stop praying and crying to God. And he fasted as well. But the boy still died. And the day after the boy died, David got up, he washed his face and started to eat. And then he just went back to being the king. And this shocked everyone around them. They fell saying, well, aren't you going to mourn? Don't you feel sorry at all? And his answer is recorded in 2 Samuel 12, verses 22 to 23. And this is what it says. It says, and he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Uh, there was a sense in which he got over it. He had to move on. There was a time where he drew a line in the sand and he said, no more grieving. And then it comes, he talks about our joys. Once again, verse 30, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And here we make new friends. We possibly might find our partner for life. Um, who knows? If there's a miracle, there might even be a sporting win this afternoon. Uh, it could be a nice movie. It could be uh, a musical or a promotion of some kind. A baby is born. Um, people and circumstances genuinely bring us happiness. They genuinely bring us good times. And he's saying... Even though they bring us good times, don't get obsessed with good times. Don't think you deserve a good time all the time. And when you don't get it, when you have a lack of joy for some reason, and circumstances are not as easy, it shouldn't make us sour and grumpy. We shouldn't sulk. We shouldn't be whingers. Um, once again, he's saying, really, get over yourselves and get on with it. Uh, Israel and Egypt, you know, they were in hard slavery. What a horrible life it was. Seven days a week, and just when they thought they were getting on top of it, the hay got taken away from them, and they had to work even harder. And the quotas were not even reduced, even in the slightest. But God wonderfully and miraculously brings them out of Egypt, and after 40 years in the wilderness, he brings them to the threshold of the promised land. And the spies come back and they say, there are giants in the land. And the minute they hear there are giants in the land, they think there are three or four things they should do. The first thing they do is whinge and complain. The second thing they think is that we should stone Moses and Aaron. And that's a good strategy. It always works. And then the, the third thing they think of is, why don't we go back to Egypt? Because life was pretty good there. And can you see, like... Their mindset. We're out of Egypt now. Our whole future in life should be happy days. Nothing other than happy days. If we have to have any pain, if we have to have any work, if we have to have any suffering, well, it's God's fault. And so in Numbers 14, this is how God speaks of them. Numbers 14. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation? who complain against me. Can you picture that? They complained even after all God had done. 
And then the third area are our possessions. And he says we should buy, or those who buy, as though they did not possess. And each one of us have probably had to buy a range of things uh, from a PC or a phone or possibly something bigger, a car or a house. or um, And whatever we bought, it could even be our favourite clothing. It just seemed to drag us in. We, we looked at how we could improve it, how we could program it, how we could just make it suit us uh, just a little bit better. And somehow we got besotted with it, it consumed us, it attracted our interest, and we actually got a degree of comfort or degree of joy uh, over this new thing. And we do have to own things in this world if we're going to do anything. I mean, just to come here, I had to come in a car. Um, Although I'll just remind you that when Smithfield started in 1842, there was a pastor who used to walk from Bathurst Street to Smithfield um, every Sunday morning and preach there. So um, maybe I should have walked. Um, but, but we have to own things, don't we? And, and when we think about owning things, we buy these things and we think we've got control of them. But so quickly they take ownership of us. And so quickly they control us, in fact. And he's saying the possessions of this life should not cause us to obsess so much. We should not forget the God who gives us the good things. We should not somehow ignore him and just get so caught up with our possessions and become envious and bitter if we don't have the possessions that we'd like to have. So Solomon says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And then the last area he brings is creation. He says, who you, Those who use this world as not misusing it. And we like our holidays, our travel, our sport, uh, our pets, nature walks, all the stuff we do in the world, and we just love the world for it. And these are all good things God has created for us to enjoy. And he's given us so much time, particularly in Australia, to relax and enjoy it, and, and to revive our bodies, to revive our spirits and our emotions. And he's given us this whole world to use it, but not misuse it. And, and we so easily become people who worship creation, even more than the Creator. And we worship our relaxation. We love our free time. Uh, we were told that uh, in the days of the Puritans, the mindset was that you actually make sure you rest on the weekend so you would be ready for work. Uh, our lifestyle today is you make sure you get through work through the week so that you can be ready for the weekend. Uh, and it's a it's totally different mindset. Uh, and even we as Christians can so easily be described as lazy hedonists. And Paul is saying to us, even creation, even the earth that never moves, it's actually going to pass away. There's going to be a day when it's no more, and that the everyday things of life should not consume us. The next thing he says is that even things like singleness and marriage should not consume us. And if anything is going to drag the heartstrings. It's really singleness and marriage. And he, and he really is talking about that as the main subject in this uh, chapter. And he's saying, in essence, and I, I paraphrase it in a big picture way, 
It's not more spiritual to be single, and it's not more spiritual to be married. It's neither here nor there. In fact, if you want to be single, you're free to do that. And if you want to be married, you're free to get married. And he says, in fact, he's giving his judgment in this area. In verse 25, he says, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. So, so Paul's saying that Jesus did not command specifically in some of these areas. And he's saying, though, that his judgment or his opinion is not just optional advice. It's more that Jesus did not have opportunity while he was on earth to specifically command and speak about some of the detail he's spoken about. And so Paul, as an apostle, has now been, in God's mercy, appointed to give us what is God's opinion on the matter, what is God's will, what is, in fact, God's word on the matter. And he says when he gives this judgment, just because there's no recorded commandment from Jesus, this is actually now the recorded commandment we have from God and from Jesus. So Paul's judgment, once again, he's saying if you decide to be single, there's no problem with it. There's no lasso around your neck that drags you into marriage. No one's forcing you into marriage. And then he's saying if you're married, you're free to stay married. No one is forcing you to be single. It's not more spiritual that you be single. Look at verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Don't think the grass is greener on the other side. If you're single, do not assume that marriage will fix all your problems. And if you're married, do not assume that being single will take away all your problems. But Paul then speaks to the widows and the singles, and he focuses on them for a little while. And he says that you should not be railroaded into marriage just because you think it's more socially acceptable or more spiritual or any of those things. Look at verses 37 and verses 38, how he speaks to them. He says, Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage does better. Um, I've tried to discuss the role of parents uh, in, my, in the marriage of my children, and uh, it's a dead-end topic. We go to India every year, and I come back a sad and lonely man. Uh, but no matter who decides who a person, who decides about marriage or singleness for us, Paul says you're not to assume that one marital status has any huge advantage over the other. So do not let your desire to be single or do not let your desire to be married become an obsession. For some, staying single is just too much pressure. For some, we would just like to be married so don't become like pressure cookers just waiting to explode. If it is at all possible, be married. And in verse 36 he says this, But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she has passed the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. 
there are people who want to share their lives uh, with other people. There are people who want to have children. There are people who want all the chores of home. And if this is for you, he's saying you're free. You're free. If it is at all possible, be married. But then he warns those who do get married. He says, be careful. Look at verse 28. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh. But I would spare you. And that's a little bit of a news flash to everyone that's married, isn't it? He says, it's not a sin to be married. But he says, married life is difficult. Oh, really? He says, it's tough. The single Pharisee tells married people, listen, if you get married, it's not a problem, but you're going to have stress. It's going to be difficult. And it might be over who makes the bed. It might be over how you squeeze the toothpaste. It might be over temperatures of the room when you're going to sleep, or it might be what you watch on TV. But sharing a life with someone is difficult. And I've only taken up the big issues. I haven't started with the little ones. What he's saying is you have to make sacrifices, even if you get married. And perhaps you thought you were going to be some sporting star, but you've got to give it up and take a regular job because that's what will pay the bills. Perhaps you thought you were going to have these wonderful holidays, but you've got to give them up because the school fees have come in now. Uh, Perhaps you think that this week would be a wonderful week to go and have a night at the footy with a bunch of mates. But no, this week you have the responsibility of staying at home and having a family devotion with your family. Now being single demands that we deny the flesh and we deny ourselves, most certainly. His point is being married requires that you deny yourself and that you need to learn that you need to also serve your families. Now Paul's often seen as this authoritarian or this misogynist or this bloke who just absolutely hates marriage or hates fun. But did you notice how wonderfully balanced, how symmetrical his advice was all through this chapter? If you had the chance to study this, we've done all of 1 Corinthians. He's realistic about the stresses in our life and he's realistic about the problems of whatever situation we're in. But at the same time, it's balance and beauty. Look at how he compares singleness to marriage. Uh, Verse 34. There's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy, both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. His point is we should all really be caring about the things of the Lord. But the single person just has that slight advantage. And they just have more opportunity to do so. And marriage is gently and so wonderfully described as caring for each other or pleasing each other, isn't it? And he just says there that even in our marriages, really, we should be serving God. And marriage is not for self-gratification or self-indulgence in any way. Any preoccupation on my rights, any preoccupation on my needs and my desires and my wants will make singleness or marriage quite a miserable state. Then he speaks to widows who are now free to marry again. And that's the last part of his judgment. He says, 
that you can marry again. It's free. You're free to marry again. Just marry Christians. Look at verse 39. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whomever she wishes. Only in the Lord. It sounds so practical and so unromantic. If you had to produce the next Mills and Boone novel, you would not invite Paul to do it. Uh, If you had to design the next dating website, Paul would be kept far away from it, wouldn't he? Or even if you were in some churches and you thought we needed a marriage enrichment course, would you actually invite Paul to turn up? I don't know. Uh, He doesn't even give us any fun single activities to keep us occupied. You see what his goal is? His goal is that we might be godly. His aim is that we might serve the Lord Jesus Christ because he is our master. And if you were to go to Paul and say, can you please give me some marriage advice or single advice? Well, particularly to the marriage, he'd say something like this. You should be those who have wives, but as though you had none. You get the picture? He's saying don't get obsessed about your marital status. Don't get obsessed about finding the right partner and making sure you've got the right partner. And don't be dissatisfied and obsessed about your dissatisfaction if you don't like your marriage. If you really are looking for something to obsess about, obsess about denying yourself. Obsess about seeking to be more useful in service. If you really want to obsess, obsess daily about keeping the commandments, about being obedient to Christ. And he's going to finish off on, well I'll finish off on this one verse where he says, this is where we will find real happiness and blessing. This is where we'll find cohesion and usefulness. And our last point, we should aim for undistracted service for Jesus. Now, verse 35, and this I say for your own profit. Not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. And I think this is like a summary verse, to be honest, for the whole chapter. He's talked a lot about singleness and marriage, and I think here he's laying down some big picture, big points that you really need to think through and that we need to take on board. And he's been actually speaking about Christian liberties from chapter 6 and he'll go on to chapter 10 speaking about Christian liberties and his point here is that you have a lot of freedoms you have the right or the freedom to marry you have the freedom in fact to stay single if you wish but with all the freedoms that Christ gives you uh, your freedom should not be a license to sin in fact our freedom in Christ is a freedom from sin and, and when we are in Christ, we're actually in Christ because the Holy Spirit has come and dwelt in us. He empowers us to overcome sin. Because of him, we now know what it means to have victory over sin. And how victory over sin is totally compatible with obedience to Christ. It's the same thing. And our loyalty to Jesus just becomes so much more intense Um, now that we're one with him. We become so determined and so set in our mind to obey him in all things. 
In fact, earlier in chapter uh, 7, he says that we can best be described as slaves of Christ. Uh, Look at verses 22 and 23 of the same chapter. For he who is called in the Lord, while a slave, is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. And the word is doulos, isn't it? It's this person who is owned, this person who has no rights, this person who can be bought and sold. And he's saying that's what you are in Christ. You're a slave of Christ. But in verse 35, when he says, Serve the Lord without distraction, he doesn't use that word doulos. He uses another Greek word. And it actually can be best translated as serve, but some of you might have devotion in your Bibles. And the reason there's a bit of a problem is because Paul took a Greek word, a Greek word from the Old Testament. So when the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek, Paul takes that Greek word, and it's a Greek word that's only used in connection with the altar and the temple. And it's the word that means more than just service and more than just devotion. It's devoted service. It's heartfelt exciting service we actually love it it's something we really want to do is what Paul is saying and and the apostle is saying that all our liberties are given to us but they should all be used to point to this one end they should be used to point towards serving God with all our hearts and to serve him without distraction And he recognizes that you've got freedoms. He recognizes that you've got rights. He's saying, but give them up. Give them up. It's better to give them up so that you're not distracted in serving God. And make sure when you're serving him, it's not just because you think it's rules. Because he clearly says, I am not putting a leash on you. This is not rules for rules' sake. I'm not trying to be a killjoy. I'm actually telling you that our freedom is for serving Christ with excitement, with love, with devotion. When I was in business, I had to employ people every now and then. And often it would be given to me to do the interview uh, with this young person, usually when I was older, that is. And um, at the end, I would have to try and make them feel slightly more comfortable so that they could talk openly with me and I could talk openly with them. And it's a stressful time, so I'd often start off with a question like this. And I would say, what is the one thing that gives you the biggest buzz in your life? Uh, What's the one thing that gets you so excited that you wake up in the morning and you say, this is what I'm going to do? And you'd get all these strange answers. You'd get things like, when I got married, that was the biggest buzz in my life. Our first baby, climbing this mountain or that mountain. Uh, A holiday in France. Uh, one person who I was particularly impressed with said, I'd love to work with you. And, um, and I thought that was a very genuine answer. And so um, uh, he, he wasn't employed. Um, but, but what gives you the biggest buzz this morning? What, what, what's the thing that makes you wake up? What takes up most headspace for you this morning? And, and when you have absolutely nothing to do, what comes into your mind first? Paul states that for a Christian, the biggest buzz is service to the Lord. It's not being distracted from this calling in any way. 
And he says he's telling you about this for your own good, for your own profit. God has in mind your good and my good. Paul wants us to be blessed. And as we implement these truths, we're going to feel the pain of self-denial and denying ourselves. But in the long run, it's going to be good, isn't it? And we'll be blessed. We'll be more mature. We'll be godlier. In fact, we'll even be happier. And this I say, he says, for your own profit. Now, I don't know if you're new here. I really do know the congregation, but I see new faces every time I come here. And you might be thinking, I'm saying, if you are a slave of Christ and if you're obedient to Christ, well, then you'll be saved and you'll be friends with God and you'll be a Christian. Uh, The Bible never teaches us that our obedience makes us a Christian or that our works will actually earn us any form of kudos before God because the Bible actually declares that no matter how hard we try, we are by nature disobedient And even in our efforts, our polluted efforts, make God angry. We're all sinners. We're all failures. And it needed God to intervene to save us or else we'd be doomed. And the Bible says that Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus being sent from God, and his death on the cross actually paid the penalty for sin and it paid a ransom to free us, free us from sin and to become his and some people actually hear this and they respond, they believe. They, they, go, they turn to God. And they do that because God has sent his spirit to awaken them and to bring them to faith. And when they are awakened and they come to believe and this work of Jesus is applied to them, they don't think it's something they did. In fact, they're quite convinced it's free of charge. It's all free. God has done it all, and he's done every bit of the work that has happened in us when we're saved. What Paul is speaking about is what happens having been saved. And once you are saved, once you're made alive, once you're born again, you start to follow Jesus. Strong desires well up inside us, and we want to serve him. And he's saying of this Christian... This Christian is a slave of Christ, but this Christian loves to be a slave of Christ. He just couldn't choose anything better. And Jesus says it this way, doesn't he? He says also that we come freely to him for salvation, but once we're saved, we become slaves of his. Let me read Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest, free of charge. You will get rest. But then note what he says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen.